Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, an action-adventure title developed and published by Nintendo, released in 1998 for the Nintendo 64 console. We are going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 72. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We have great discussions. We do weekly gaming challenges. We have contests with prizes. We do all sorts of stuff. If that sounds interesting, definitely check out our Discord. I should also mention that we also have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, including an exclusive bi-weekly podcast expansion pack, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign numerical rankings or star counts or anything like that. But we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. Absolutely give it a go. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really good experiences, and I still highly encourage you to check them out today. Beyond our golden oldies, we reach our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad gaming population. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game exists, but for the most part, I can't recommend these broadly. They've either aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or... They may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time.
The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time was an action-adventure title developed and published by Nintendo, released in 1998 for the Nintendo 64 console. Before we can talk about Ocarina of Time, we've got to go back and talk just a little bit about the evolution of the Legend of Zelda series, as well as what the state of three-dimensional gaming was around this time. Along the way, we'll talk about a couple of the key players in the game's creation, and eventually talk about how Ocarina of Time created a legacy that is almost unmatched in the video game industry. But before we get to all of that, let's do a quick recap on the Legend of Zelda series. We have talked a lot about The Legend of Zelda previously, and in fact, we have an entire episode dedicated to the game in our back catalog, but to provide a bit of a refresher. The Legend of Zelda was created for the Japanese-only Famicom Disk System back in 1986 by Rockstar game designer Shigeru Miyamoto, and was designed concurrently with the original Super Mario Bros., almost as two sides of the same coin. Because, in the mid-80s, Nintendo was reaching an inflection point. They had just single-handedly revitalized the video game market, and as they prepared for the North American launch of their 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System, they knew that they needed to deliver a set of experiences that would capture the attention of the North American gaming market, while at the same time delivering the kinds of unique, engaging experiences the Japanese gamers had come to love, especially in light of the forthcoming Famicom Disk System release in Japan. So, Nintendo asked their star game designer Shigeru Miyamoto to take on two assignments— the first was intended to represent the pinnacle of current 8-bit game design, to be playable on a standard Famicom or NES system, while the second project was intended to represent the future of game design, leveraging all of the advanced capabilities that the Famicom disk system would provide, like advanced sound and, for the first time, an actual save system that didn't require passwords to store a player's progress. One game would be designed as a purely linear affair, with a degree of polish that was unmatched in video games of the time, while the other would be designed as an entirely open-world experience, where there would be little to no hand-holding, and gamers could truly choose how, and in what order, they'd tackle the game's challenges. The astute amongst you might realize that one of those titles, the one designed to be a linear, albeit expertly designed affair, was the original Super Mario Bros., while the future-leading open-world experience is what would eventually become The Legend of Zelda. While both titles were in development, Miyamoto instructed the team to capture any and all ideas they may have had, with Miyamoto deciding which game each idea aligned more closely with, literally creating collections of proposals that were referred to as Mario ideas and Zelda ideas. The thought there was that if an idea worked for one game, it wouldn't necessarily work for the other, and vice versa so Miyamoto decided to act as the arbiter of which game each idea would be applied to. The number of proposed ideas were vast, but the majority were universally good, so each game continued to have refinements and new features added to them, until eventually, Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda would release for the Famicom in 1985 and 1986 respectively, with NES ports of each of them following. To say that Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda were important releases in video game history would be a gross understatement, as both served as the first entries in what would become historic game series that have remained in the pop culture spotlight ever since their first release. Mario, Link, and Zelda rapidly became franchise characters for Nintendo, and as you might imagine, those initial releases would be followed up with a number of sequels in short order, both for Nintendo's 8-bit console ecosystem, the portable Nintendo Game Boy, as well as Nintendo's 16-bit powerhouse, the Super Famicom, or Super Nintendo Entertainment System, depending on which part of the world you lived in. 
In almost all instances, the core team responsible for those releases included some combination of Shigeru Miyamoto, as well as other key players that contributed their talents, perhaps most notably Koji Kondo, who composed many of the recognizable themes for each series that continue to stand the test of time. New entries in either series would prove incredibly popular to gamers around the world, and would be universally critically acclaimed. In fact, the games were so well-liked and so well-designed that oftentimes they would be considered system sellers by themselves. In other words, people would go out of their way to purchase a Nintendo console, simply because of the quality of their core franchise series. Sure, other games were good too, and certainly sweetened the pot for any prospective buyers. But the mere existence of Mario or Link on a Nintendo system was enough to make people consider purchasing the console, because there was no other way to experience those particular adventures. As the 90s progressed, Nintendo faced stiff competition from a number of companies across the video game industry, some of which, like Sega, had been longtime competitors, while others, like Sony, were new market entrants spurred on, at least in part, by a strong desire to unseat Nintendo as the incumbent champion of home console sales. This level of competition introduced a huge amount of innovation in a relatively short period of time, as each console manufacturer tried to one-up the other by delivering even more increasing numbers of bits and significant advancements in graphics, sound, storage capacity, and control schemes, all in the hopes of winning more market share than their competitors. Despite Nintendo's long-term success, they were not infallible, and there was a period of time in the early 90s where they did, in fact, lose their market lead, caused by Sega's full-court press of relentless marketing, edgy games, and an expanding stable of its own must-play franchises. While Sega's assault would be relatively short-lived before Nintendo reclaimed its throne, the introduction of three-dimensional technology and new consoles designed to leverage those new visuals, like the Sony PlayStation, made it so that Nintendo had to continue to innovate. Otherwise, there was a very real chance of it being left in the dust. Luckily for Nintendo fans, the company was not taking things lying down, and instead it was readying its own brand new console release, the Nintendo 64, which introduced advanced three-dimensional graphics and brand new control schemes, like the introduction of an analog stick on the system's default controller. The Nintendo 64 sounded great, and with the technology for the system coming via a partnership with industry graphics leader Silicon Graphics, and a number of development companies signed up to produce games for the console, the future for this system looked bright. There was just one thing that needed to be addressed. Like we talked about before, Nintendo had a stable of franchise characters that they believed were true system sellers, and by the time the Nintendo 64 was being conceptualized and developed, Nintendo realized that they needed to have a killer game, most likely from the Mario series, available for its eventual release. And who better to bring that killer game to life than their resident creative genius, Shigeru Miyamoto? Miyamoto conceptualized a three-dimensional Mario experience where the player would have complete freedom to navigate a fully realized game world inhabited by all of the Mario creatures gamers had come to know and love, like Goombas, Koopas, and Baboms, while at the same time introducing players to brand new enemies and characters, and a number of platforming challenges that were unlike anything that had come before. And the reason for that game's uniqueness was, in fact, because it was designed from the ground up as a three-dimensional experience. In the mid-90s, games designed using full-scale 3D, outside of the first-person shooter genre, were still relatively new, and nobody had really figured out how to create a third-person three-dimensional game with a control scheme that didn't, in some way, feel cumbersome and difficult to use. 
Nowadays, we take three-dimensional worlds for granted, and there are many common control schemes that make navigating three-dimensional spaces a breeze. That was most certainly not the case in the mid-90s, and despite many developers' best efforts, the prospect of a worthwhile 3D game with the same level of quality as traditional two-dimensional titles was still a dream. Miyamoto, however, is a visionary game designer, and he, along with co-director Yoshiaki Kazumi, led a talented team of artists, designers, and programmers in creating what would become a truly revolutionary three-dimensional platform experience. That game, Mario 64, would represent the pinnacle of three-dimensional game design up to that point, and the innovations developed for that title, such as the camera mechanics, overall control scheme, perspective and depth calculations, and countless other ideas, would form the foundation for nearly every other 3D platforming title that would follow. If the original Super Mario Bros. represented the blueprint from which all side-scrolling platforming titles would be created, Mario 64 did the same exact thing, albeit for three-dimensional worlds. As you might imagine, Mario 64 was not the only Nintendo title in development for the Nintendo 64, and interestingly, one of those forthcoming in-development titles would create a situation that was in many ways reminiscent of the Nintendo of the mid-80s. Because, in addition to Mario 64 being in active development for the new 64-bit console, there was also a brand new Legend of Zelda title being created for the system. That game, of course, was Zelda 64. We've talked about how game companies plan and develop games before, but just to refresh everyone's memories. Oftentimes, big game publishers and development companies will have multiple titles in development at any point in time, and usually, each title is at a different level of maturity. The goal for these big companies is to have a constant stream of games ready to release, and in order to do that, they need to have multiple teams, multiple senior designers, and a robust schedule in order to map out their releases to maximize profits. Nintendo, being a major game studio, was no different, and at the point Mario 64 had been nearing completion, Zelda 64 had been in an early stage of development. That, however, did not stop the teams working on the titles from sharing ideas, which kind of makes sense when you consider that Miyamoto was ultimately the mastermind behind both titles. That being said, Miyamoto's day-to-day involvement was much more focused on Mario 64, for a couple of reasons. For one, Mario 64 was always intended to be the first game out of the gate for the Nintendo 64, and there was a strong realization that if Nintendo could deliver a revolutionary 3D launch title for their system, then they'd be setting themselves up for greater success in the ever-volatile console wars. And secondly, Miyamoto's star power had continued to rise in Nintendo, and he had proven himself countless times to be an incredibly talented game designer and director. Because of that success, Miyamoto received a promotion of sorts right around this time. While he would end up directing Mario 64, he would become the producer for the forthcoming Zelda 64 game, which meant that he was responsible for leading a number of other directors, but wouldn't necessarily be solely responsible for designing every aspect of the game. Becoming a producer for Zelda 64 also meant that Miyamoto could, at the same time, focus on completing Mario 64 without negatively impacting Zelda 64's early development. And that's exactly what he did. Though the fact that he was involved with both titles still made him ultimately responsible for both games' success or failure, and he would often come up with ideas that he thought would be a worthwhile addition to one or both titles. While Mario 64 would utilize a number of those ideas to create a landmark 3D platforming title, for Zelda 64, Miyamoto and his team had even grander plans. 
Recall that the original plan for the very first Super Mario Bros. game on the Nintendo Famicom system was to be a mostly linear, straightforward affair, while the goal for the first Legend of Zelda was to provide a wide-open world where players could do nearly anything. Well, that same exact conceptual framework is what the team would work to put in place for both Mario 64 and Zelda 64, with Mario 64 being a more structured game based on the concept of levels and a hub world of sorts, and Zelda 64 being an open-world epic adventure with multiple lands, or zones, and interconnected dungeons that players could explore at their leisure. Now, the good news for Nintendo is that all of the time spent developing Mario 64 would actually end up benefiting Zelda 64, as Miyamoto and the team were able to start leveraging the Mario 64 engine for use in the development of Zelda 64, at least as a start. The thing is, though, Zelda 64's potential scope was rapidly expanding, driven largely by the talented team of designers and directors that Miyamoto had put together, not to mention the fact that once Mario 64 was completed, Anyone who worked on that title was free to refocus their efforts on Zelda 64. This ended up creating a situation where some of the brightest talent in the company all converged on this single project, and nearly everyone had ideas for how to make Zelda 64 the biggest and best 3D adventure the world had ever seen. And by the way, when I say everyone had ideas for this new Zelda game, I legitimately mean Everyone had ideas, so much so that when the full development team got together for the first time, the game's directors, which included Mario 64 co-director Yoshiaki Kazumi, relative newcomer Eiji Aonuma, a Link to the Past co-director Yoichi Yamada, and Kid Icarus creator Toru Osawa, all encouraged the team to write down any and all ideas that they thought would be needed to create a good 3D game. The team was then instructed to take all of those ideas and literally stick them up on a wall, which the game's director team would then review and decide on which ones to adopt for Zelda 64. As you might imagine, a number of the ideas were influenced by the team's work on Mario 64, since a good portion of the team now knew what it took to create a well-designed 3D title, as Mario 64 was widely touted as one of the best games of all time, and the framework from which the majority of future 3D platform titles would inherit from. The thing is, though... The directors didn't just want to create a game as good as Mario 64. They wanted to create the kind of game that nobody had ever seen, and no developer had ever created before. To that end, as they reviewed the team's ideas, they paid particular attention to any idea that seemed impossible to do, the thought being that if it was deemed impossible, then that likely meant nobody had ever done it before. So obviously, that idea would have to make its way into Zelda 64. I have to admit, that kind of thought process really demonstrates how confident and talented this star team of developers, designers, artists, and others really were. To be so sure in yourself that you look for ideas that others think are impossible and simply decide, yeah, we're going to do that, is pretty darn awesome. Anyway, once all the ideas were tabulated, there were a number of concepts on the table, so let's go through some of them and the associated challenges that each idea would have to overcome. One overriding concept was the fact that the gameplay was intended to take place in a mostly open world, with a massive amount of content and data storage requirements, and there was a recognition that there would definitely have to be some work done to convert Link's traditional two-dimensional sword play into a three-dimensional sword fighting system that players would be able to enjoy, which, given the state of current 3D control schemes at this point in history, would prove to be a challenging endeavor. Beyond creating a 3D combat engine, the team also had to figure out how to create a fully realized 3D world, as the goal was to create an environment that was truly made up of polygons and weren't simply facades preventing player exploration. 
This might sound easy, but when you consider the complexity that was involved with some of the actions Lincoln take in the game, even something as conceptually simple as collision detection would require significant effort to get just right. To build an extra layer of immersion on top of that 3D world, Miyamoto also threw out his own challenge. He believed Zelda 64 should be played from a first-person perspective, the thought being that doing so would allow the player to truly explore and become a part of the land of Hyrule, certainly more so than any third-person perspective game could ever hope to achieve. And finally, there was a general belief that music should play a key role in the game. Nobody really knew exactly what that meant early on, but they figured Zelda composer Koji Kondo would have some ideas. With those and other ideas forming a relatively strong framework to create the game from, full-scale development on the title officially began. As the team began to work on the title, an interesting thing happened. They recognized that this game's size and scope was just going to be way too big to fit on a cartridge. So, the team decided that rather than make the game for the baseline Nintendo 64 console, they would instead focus their efforts on a soon-to-be-released new magnetic media-based add-on that Nintendo had been working on, known as the 64DD. The 64DD was being designed to be a peripheral similar to the Sega CD, in that it would be able to attach to the Nintendo 64 and augment the traditional Nintendo console cartridge-based format with additional storage space for certain titles. Unlike the Sega CD, Nintendo decided to do the most Nintendo thing imaginable, and rather than simply use the traditional CD-ROM format and its 650 megabytes of storage space, they instead used a proprietary format akin to a high-density floppy disk, which would store up to 64 megabytes on each disk, while allowing for players to write data to the disks directly, depending on the genre of the game. In addition to that additional storage space, the 64DD would be home to Nintendo's first online service, RandNet, and was envisioned from the beginning to be the spot for Nintendo's hottest games. And obviously, Zelda 64 would fit the bill, while also providing the killer app that the peripheral would need to really sell on the market. There was just one issue. The 64DD was constantly being delayed, and even though the intent was for the add-on to release prior to Zelda 64, it became evident that this was just not going to happen. So, the Zelda 64 team had to take a step back and make a difficult decision, choosing to pull Zelda 64 out of the 64DD pipeline and instead reinsert it back into the Nintendo 64 pipeline as a standard cartridge title. This move was pretty troubling to the team, as they knew that the storage limitation of traditional cartridges was going to likely mean the game would have to be reduced in complexity a bit. And to prepare for that inevitable change, the team began brainstorming how to convert Zelda 64 from an open-world adventure into something less expansive, very similar to Mario 64's hub-world concept. In fact, one of the early concepts for the cartridge version of Zelda 64 involved Link following series antagonist Ganondorf through a series of paintings, each of which would lead to a different level. While not a horrible concept, and certainly one that worked for Mario 64, the possibility of playing a Zelda game that consisted of levels rather than open-ended gameplay just didn't feel right. Luckily for the development team, they were able to convince Nintendo to allow them to use a larger-than-normal cartridge for the game, which would balloon to 32 megabytes in size prior to its eventual release, representing the largest game Nintendo had ever created up to that time. Filling those 32 megabytes would be a mix of detailed three-dimensional environments, exciting gameplay mechanics, and epic, albeit MIDI-synthesized, music. Speaking of three-dimensional environments, the development team took great efforts to construct 
everything in the game as a fully realized 3D space, making it one of the more technologically advanced games on the home console market. And with a huge 3D game world, there would be a need to figure out how to not only traverse the game's various lands, but also how to translate Link's combat into a three-dimensional environment. The issue here is one of evolution, and back in the mid-90s, three-dimensional control schemes had not yet evolved to the point where everyone could agree on a standard set of control patterns. This lack of standardization, coupled with the fact that fighting in three dimensions was not all that streamlined, is what caused Nintendo to begin brainstorming alternatives. And here, the team came up with an idea that would end up revolutionizing three-dimensional control schemes forever. 3D games of the time involved wandering around large, mostly open, spaces while trying to attack the various enemies that might live in a given world, or zone, or whatever. While that conceptually is no different than any other platform title or game that may have come before, that still didn't address the fact that all of those games had a serious challenge. None of the games had a satisfying, easy-to-use combat system. As you'd play these early 3D games, you might encounter situations where enemies jump around and behind you, forcing you to spin yourself around in order to compensate. Sometimes you were able to find the enemy that was attacking you and plan your counterattack. Other times, it wasn't nearly that simple, as trying to actually attack a character in a 3D space was hard, and simply getting your character to be in the same vicinity as your enemies wasn't a walk in the park either. Today, navigating a three-dimensional space in a modern title feels natural, and combat is streamlined. This was not the case in the early to mid-90s, and more times than not, trying to attack an enemy was more guesswork than anything else. Take, for example, Little Big Adventure, a game we talked about several episodes ago where you navigated in an isometric three-dimensional world and threw a magic ball at enemies as your primary attack. The simple act of hitting an enemy in that game was difficult, as the combination of three-dimensional perspective coupled with no way to really target an enemy effectively resulted in a somewhat frustrating gameplay experience. Well, that's just one example. The frustrations there were the norm, not the exception, and developers experimented with all sorts of control schemes to try to make their gameplay experience better. One of those control schemes involved the player locking onto an enemy, which would then enable them to maintain a constant focus on that enemy. This, in theory, should have made combat more straightforward. The issue, though, is that no game had really gotten lock-on targeting perfect, and it oftentimes felt very strange to use. It may have been an improvement over non-target-based solutions, but it still isn't what many people would consider feeling natural. The Zelda 64 team was aware of this control scheme, and the pitfalls that many developers faced when trying to implement it. So, they decided to refine the entire concept, creating a mechanism for lock-on targeting for Zelda 64 that they ended up calling Z-Targeting. This control scheme, which involved pressing the Z button on a Nintendo 64 controller, would result in the player becoming completely locked onto the enemy they were facing, maintaining constant view of that enemy and its movements, while at the same time providing the player with a new moveset to allow for easy dodging, attacks, and general focused movement. This new method for targeting and fighting in 3D, while not the first instance of lock-on targeting in gaming, would certainly become the most influential and the best iteration of the concept to date. And the team knew they had finally figured out how to make 3D combat engaging and fun. At the same time, though, their targeting scheme lacked a certain character. Sure, the mechanics worked fine, but it felt kind of out of place in the typically magical and fantastical world of a Legend of Zelda game. 
In an effort to make Z-targeting feel a bit more integrated into the game world, Yoshiaki Kazumi came up with the concept of using a fairy that would assist in the act of targeting enemies and helping the player navigate various locations in the game world. This gameplay mechanics, which came to be known as the fairy navigation system, added a nice dose of personality to the game's otherwise sterile Z-targeting system. But it was still missing something. I mean, it's not like it's the most natural thing in the world to look at a fairy in a game and say, that's my fairy navigation system. Even developing the game, the team would oftentimes abbreviate fairy navigation system as simply Navi, which kind of rolled off the tongue a bit easier. And you know what? As the team began using the term Navi more and more, it kind of grew on them. And one day they considered, what if your magical target fairy actually had a name? What if it was an actual character in the story? What if it was a constant companion that could help guide the player on their adventure? It turns out, those questions caused the team to rethink the fairy navigation system, and what was originally a simple gameplay mechanic evolved into the magical fairy Navi. Whether you love or hate Navi and her frequent interruptions, the fact is that she is an important piece in the overall Zelda 64 story, and often serves to propel the adventure forward. And speaking of that story and adventure the team had considered a number of different themes and potential storylines for the game. But one concept the team kept coming back to was the act of time travel, or more specifically, navigating two different timelines, with events interspersed between the two in a cause-effect kind of relationship. Meaning, you might do something in the past that, by definition, would affect the future, and using this kind of concept would allow for a number of different puzzle types and game situations that could exploit that timing-based causality. There was a lot of potential in this kind of setup, and the team decided pretty quickly that this would be one of the core concepts behind the game, where players would be able to control both a child version of Link, as well as one that was a bit older as they progressed through the game. Each version of Link would have different strengths and limitations, with certain weapons and items being specific to one version or the other, and certain puzzles could only be solved by not only choosing the right Link for the situation, but also by recognizing that environments change over time, and something that might have existed in the past might no longer exist in the future, or vice versa. The team was excited by this framework, but there was just one problem. There was no real good way to see visually which version of Link you were being. Recall that Zelda 64 was originally being developed using a first-person perspective, so you didn't have the ability to see your character as you navigated the game world. After the time travel mechanic was introduced to the game, Miyamoto believed that there needed to be a way to see your character on the screen, which prompted a shift away from the first-person viewpoint into a third-person perspective kind of experience, which, though I mentioned it earlier in our discussion, was actually when the concept of Z-targeting really came into play. As work progressed the team kept adding more and more new features to the game, including a fairly expansive magic system for Link to use throughout his adventure, with a number of different situationally relevant spells made available to the player. Miyamoto, however, was not convinced this was the best path forward, and in fact, Miyamoto in general is not a huge believer in using quote-unquote magic in games. He's given interviews in the past where he clarified his viewpoint, stating that magic by itself isn't bad, but he often feels like development teams use magic as an easy way out, a way of providing the player with an option that is a bit too straightforward. Instead, Miyamoto suggested that the number of spells should be reduced, with mechanics shifting to focus on the game's more innovative musical feature and one of the key items in Link's forthcoming adventure, the ocarina. Music has always played a role in Link's adventures, whether talking about the tornado-summoning flute in the original Legend of Zelda, the eight instruments of the siren in Link's Awakening, or the ocarina in Link to the Past. 
For Zelda 64, though, music was going to take a more front and center position in the game, with the majority of the game's more magical types of mechanics, like warping to different dungeons, changing daytime to nighttime, or causing a storm to magically appear, becoming different songs that players could play using the in-game ocarina. Interestingly, the reason the team decided to focus on the ocarina as a key mechanic for the game comes from the fact that the Nintendo 64's controller actually looks somewhat like an ocarina. So, Miyamoto and the team believed that allowing players to quote-unquote play the ocarina using the controller would be an engaging gameplay mechanic. Koji Kondo, while behind the idea conceptually, faced a good amount of difficulty creating the various mini-jingles that would represent the ocarina-based songs players would learn throughout their journey. Every song had to be composed using only five playable notes, and early on, Kondo would be challenged with coming up with themes that sounded good and had enough variety to be engaging to players. Kondo, though, is a musical genius, and he would eventually come up with a number of themes that have since become iconic songs in their own right, while also populating the entire game world with a variety of songs and musical pieces, creating a situation where each area in the game would be represented by a different song. The variety at play here was impressive, so much so that the game's soundtrack would get a standalone release shortly after the game came out. And funnily enough, the game's use of the ocarina would end up causing sales of real-world ocarina instruments to increase, an interesting and profitable side effect to the game's focus on the ocarina as a core mechanic. And with that focus on the ocarina, the team decided to buck a common trend seen in other Nintendo 64 game releases. Rather than simply affixing a 64 to the end of their game's name, they decided instead to stick with the more traditional Zelda naming convention, which meant that Zelda 64, upon its release, would be known as The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Actually getting to release, though, would be a bit of a roller coaster, as the team not only needed to pivot from an originally planned 64DD release, but also needed to figure out how to integrate state-of-the-art development techniques like motion capture into the experience, while at the same time living up to the sky-high expectations many gamers would have for any Zelda release. While the game would originally debut in an early form back in 1995, it would take three years of active development with over 200 people working on the title before it would finally be ready for release in November of 1998. And the build-up to that release, by the way, was awesome, as Nintendo spent $10 million marketing the title, in addition to launching an exclusive collector's edition pre-order that would ship on a gold cartridge, similar to the prior gold cartridge releases for the first two Zelda games on the Nintendo Entertainment System. I still cherish my gold cartridge to this day, but actually getting one back in 1998 was no guarantee, as the interest in the game was so great that many retailers stopped taking pre-orders in advance of the game's release. In fact, Ocarina of Time would end up having the most pre-orders of any game ever at the time of its release, with over 500,000 pre-orders placed, more than triple what had been seen before. Absolutely crazy numbers for a game in the 90s. The fact is, though, that a huge number of pre-orders does not guarantee a game is going to be good, and we've seen plenty of examples in modern times of games with insane pre-sale hype only to result in disappointment on launch day. Luckily for all involved, though, Ocarina of Time would have no such problems, as upon its release, it would receive universal acclaim as being a nearly perfect gaming experience. Seriously, nearly every review publication of the time awarded the game a perfect score, with countless players also declaring the title to be the greatest game ever made. The praise for Ocarina of Time was truly all-encompassing, 
and there wasn't a single aspect of the game that wasn't praised. Except perhaps for the fact that it didn't include the main Legend of Zelda overworld theme, which I will agree was a bit of a head-scratcher. Despite that glaring omission, Ocarina of Time would become a worldwide success, with over 7 million copies sold in the years following its release, while also owning the distinction of being the highest-rated game of all time on the review aggregation site Metacritic, inclusive of modern titles. Literally, Ocarina of Time is the best critically-reviewed game ever. As you might imagine, Ocarina of Time would win countless awards and would go on to influence pretty much every game released since. One reviewer even called the title a walking patent office because of how many innovations and features it both invented and popularized, which ended up changing the game industry in the process. More locally, it would also serve as the framework upon which future 3D Zelda adventures would be built, most directly its pseudo-direct sequel, Majora's Mask, though even beyond that, more recent Zelda titles like Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom owe their existence to the work originally performed while developing Ocarina of Time. Ocarina of Time would also be re-released several times over the years, including on the Nintendo GameCube, the 3DS, and various virtual consoles. The 3DS version bears a special mention, as it is not simply an emulated version of the original, but is instead a remake that contains a number of tweaks to the controls, gameplay, and overall design, with new features like a boss challenge mode added to the overall experience. I should also mention that, similar to the original Legend of Zelda, a second quest of sorts entitled Master Quest would be created for Ocarina of Time, though it would not be included in the base version of the game. Initially, it was designed as an add-on for Ocarina of Time, to be distributed for the 64DD peripheral, which says to me that Nintendo really wanted to make that thing work, but ultimately wouldn't release until the GameCube version of the title. I have never personally tried the Master Quest version of Ocarina of Time, but the fact that it exists is something that makes me happy nonetheless. Ocarina of Time has quite the legacy, though beyond the game itself, the individuals involved with the creation of the title would similarly go on to have a lasting legacy in the video game industry, with most of the game's directors now holding executive-level leadership positions within Nintendo, including Eiji Aonuma being the longtime producer of the entire Legend of Zelda series, while Yoshiaki Kazumi maintains a similar role over the entire Super Mario franchise. Shigeru Miyamoto continues to be the highest-ranking creative officer in Nintendo, and literally has oversight over Nintendo's entire gaming portfolio. Obviously, these talented individuals would have had successful careers without having worked on Ocarina of Time, but it is unclear whether Ocarina of Time would have been as cherished if this dream team of creative talent hadn't worked on the game. With Ocarina of Time, we have a game that was created by the best of the best across all of Nintendo, and the results speak for themselves. The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time is the kind of game that is incredibly rare, one that not only polished everything it does to a near-flawless shine, but also introduced such revolutionary innovations that the game industry at large stood up and took notice. The number of developers influenced by Ocarina of Time is too many to count, and the number of gamers who still consider Ocarina of Time to be the best game ever made is virtually limitless. While we'll talk about my own opinion in just a minute, the fact is, Ocarina of Time is perhaps one of the most important releases in gaming history, and as both a historical monument and a beloved classic title, it will undoubtedly remain in the hearts and minds of gamers around the world forever.
We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Ocarina of Time today versus when it was released back in 1998. So the best way to describe Ocarina of Time is to say that it is a third-person, pseudo-open-world, three-dimensional action-adventure title, which is a description that can be applied to a huge number of games in modern times. The thing that sets Ocarina of Time apart, though, is that when it came out back in 1998, there really weren't any third-person, pseudo-open-world, three-dimensional action-adventure titles, which means that Ocarina of Time was basically the grandfather, or at least one of the grandparents, of the genre. So let's talk about the game and its core features, many of which would become mainstays in 3D open-world games, while others still remain innovative even when compared to modern titles today. First off, I need to talk about the biggest feature in the game, which is the fact that the game world, its characters, and many of the puzzles that dot the game's map exist in two distinct but interconnected time periods. In the game, you start by playing as Young Link, a prophesied chosen one kind of character who, through a series of events that I won't spoil here, will eventually skip ahead through time and become Adult Link, which brings about all sorts of changes in comparison to his child counterpart. For one, each Link can only use certain weapons, shields, armor, and items. You're never going to be able to use a bow and arrow as Young Link, but he can use a fairy slingshot to fire projectiles at enemies, which, conversely, Adult Link cannot use. There are a number of items and abilities that are tied to one version of Link over the other, which leads to some ingenious puzzle designs that require you to transcend time and space in order to solve them. Some of those puzzles, by the way, even leverage the fact that the game utilizes time travel, requiring certain actions to be done in the past before you can proceed in the game, or complete a certain puzzle in the future. The cause and effect relationship between Young Link's and Adult Link's timelines are relatively simple at the end of the day, and there isn't really much in the way of choice at play here. Meaning, it's not like you have a selection of actions that could change the future environment in different ways. You effectively have a binary choice. Either you do something and the future is affected, or you do nothing and the future stays the same. Some of those time travel linkages are straightforward, like planting a seed as a child and having it sprout a magical leaf as an adult, while others, like traversing a cave to acquire a special item that is required for a subsequent dungeon, are more complex and interwoven with other events. Overall, the game strikes a nice balance between simple time travel shenanigans and more in-depth cause-effect relationships, and it works. Facilitating that time travel is the titular Ocarina of Time, which you receive early in your journey and represents one of the main gameplay mechanics you'll use throughout the game, which is the usage of various musical songs to cause something to happen in the game world. Some of those songs act as simple warp spells, while others might cause a storm to appear, the sun to rise, or a scarecrow to rise out of the ground, becoming a sort of anchor for you to hookshot to. These songs are the primary form of magic at your disposal, though you do get some additional actual spells as you continue playing and exploring. There are a bunch of different songs you'll receive throughout the game, and trying to figure out when to use which song is a small puzzle itself, though nothing too complex to figure out. More complex, though, are the game's dungeons, which in Ocarina of Time are often multi-leveled, multifaceted, and gigantic. Shifting gears a second to look at one of the more modern Legend of Zelda entries, Breath of the Wild, many gamers levied complaints against that title because the game effectively had four main dungeons to complete, represented by each of the divine beasts in the game, and those dungeons were considered fairly simple to work your way through, without much in the way of thought-provoking puzzles or open-ended navigation. The reason those complaints even exist 
is because dungeons like those in Ocarina of Time exist, which introduced the gaming world to a series of 3D caverns, temples, dungeons, and ruins that were effectively a collection of connected puzzle boxes, with some dungeons, like the Water Temple itself, being effectively one large puzzle. The dungeons in Ocarina of Time are truly mind-bending in some instances, and in some, you have to give considerable thought on how to proceed, not to mention the observational skills needed in order to discover every secret item stashed away throughout those dungeons. And speaking of secret items, Ocarina of Time, beyond its main quest and dungeon escapades, is a world just begging to be explored. There are so many hidden secrets to be found, side quests to unravel, heart containers to discover, and mini games to experience that I'd imagine the only way someone would ever find everything the game has to offer would be to use a guide. That's not meant to disparage anyone who may use a guide to play the game. Rather, it's an admission that the game is so deep, with secrets hidden so well, that it is almost impossible to see everything without some assistance. Combat, by the way, would also be much more difficult without some assistance, which is where the previously mentioned Z-targeting system comes into play. When you move around the 3D battlefield in the game, regardless of who you're fighting, using Z-targeting, which effectively locks you onto a single enemy, is incredibly useful, as it not only forces you to remain focused on the enemy you're trying to defeat, but it also promotes a movement and control scheme that eliminates, for the most part, errant swings and jumps that can sometimes be caused by lack of depth perception, or the inherent awkwardness of moving around an early three-dimensional world. And that three-dimensional world is truly vast, at least for the time in which the game was created. While Ocarina of Time isn't truly an open-world game, there are large chunks of land that represent zones, so to speak, that you can navigate between with some zones having multiple exits to other zones, making the act of navigation streamlined, as well as adding a dash of discovery to the mix, as you never know where a secret passage may lead you. If you played this in 1998, your jaw likely hit the floor observing such a gigantic open world at play, and if you were like me, you finally felt like you could explore anywhere in a game. The psychological divide between prior games and Ocarina of Time was legitimately that vast, where playing Ocarina of Time felt like playing the future. If I put a modern lens on, though, I will say that the world feels much smaller than I remember it, a sensation likely caused by the fact that the open worlds we have today are significantly more expansive than that found in Ocarina of Time. I don't mean that as a slight against the game, but it is something that should be understood prior to sitting down to play it. I mentioned earlier on that this is an open-world title, but it's not nearly as massive as, say, any modern version of the Assassin's Creed series, for an example. Regardless, the world itself is pretty big, and navigating that world can be done both on foot as well as via horseback, which is, I believe, one of, if not the, first-time mounts could be used and directly controlled in a game. Ocarina of Time, though, takes it a step further as you can actually have mounted combat, which is a ridiculous feature to include in a game from 1998, and is yet another way Ocarina of Time proved it was ahead of its time. Despite all of these innovations, Ocarina of Time is, at its core, a Legend of Zelda title, which brings with it certain expectations, such as dungeon exploration with bosses, special items to be acquired, many of which will allow you to explore new sections of the world or open up interesting travel mechanics, a ton of secrets, and a relatively straightforward story where you have to defeat an evil menace in order to save the world. And luckily, Ocarina of Time has all of those core Zelda elements and then some. This is a Zelda game through and through, and despite the move to three dimensions, the game never skips a beat. While some titles took the transition to 3D pretty hard, 
Ocarina of Time handled its shift with more grace than nearly any other game series. It is simply that good. We're going to talk more about how good the game is, but first, we need to take a look at the back of the box, because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love learning how different companies marketed their titles, especially because, with many of the games that we look at, our buying decision was based mostly on what the box looked like and what was said on the back of the box. We didn't have the internet with all of its pervasive information, and we certainly didn't have gameplay videos on YouTube to look up before we bought a game. What we did have, though, was the box in front of us and what was written on the back of the box. Now, for Ocarina of Time, I would argue that most people probably knew what they were getting when they got Ocarina of Time, or at least they knew of it from magazines, because like we talked about earlier, Ocarina of Time was a really big release. But regardless, I still want to look at how Nintendo created the box and what was written on the back of that box. So, for The Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, the back of the box says... Ganondorf, the evil King of Thieves, is on the move, threatening the peaceful land of Hyrule. He is determined to steal his way into the legendary Sacred Realm in hopes of harnessing the power of the mythical Triforce. As the young hero Link, it is your destiny to thwart Ganondorf's evil schemes. Navi, your guardian fairy, will guide you as you venture through the many regions of Hyrule, from the volcanic caves of Death Mountain to the treacherous waters of Zora's Domain. Before you complete this epic quest, you'll delve into deadly dungeons, collect weapons of great power, and learn the spells you need to conquer the most irresistible force of all, time. And then some bullet points. The immersive storyline and environments draw players into an amazing 3D world. Time travel allows you to play as Link in different stages of his life. New gameplay features include a unique targeting system and first and third person perspectives. And up to three games can be saved simultaneously to memory. And then, of course, there are some screenshots on the back of the box to show you different aspects of the game. And that was the back of the box for Ocarina of Time. And I've got to tell you, it absolutely sold me. It still sells me even today. I did purchase Ocarina of Time when it first came out. Like I mentioned, I actually have a gold cartridge version that I continue to cherish to this day. I think they did a remarkable job with the back of the box for Ocarina of Time because they sold it and you basically knew right away that it was a Zelda adventure, but you also knew that it was a much more advanced experience than you've likely had before with a Zelda adventure. So I would have been excited to get that, and in fact, I was excited when I got it back in 1998. We're now going to talk about some of the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. For a 3D game from 1998, Zelda looks great, with nicely detailed environments, a ton of awesome enemy designs, a fully realized 3D world, and distinct-looking items, weaponry, and equipment. That being said, this is definitely one of those titles that represents a 3D experience that was not quite fully figured out yet, or at a minimum, would have been a great candidate for more powerful hardware than what the Nintendo 64 could muster. You can clearly see the world and its characters are 3D, because you can pretty much count the polygons that make up each character and object. I don't mean to suggest that the game looks bad, it's just that it absolutely looks as though it was an artifact of its time, which of course it is. And honestly, most 3D games released in the late 90s into the early 2000s have the same kind of situation, where hardware wasn't quite strong enough to power more realistic visuals, so instead, you get a bunch of angular and harsh designs made up of polygons without too much in the way of smoothness. 
The texture maps and actual design of the textured pieces of the environment, however, were very smooth. But as was the case with many Nintendo 64 games, that general visual smoothness did not always mean higher quality artwork. It certainly meant less visible pixels, which was a good thing, and I did enjoy the overall look of the game's visuals, but I would be lying if I said Ocarina of Time's graphics 100% hold up to today's scrutiny. Moving on to the sound and music, this is one aspect of the game that absolutely holds up to today's scrutiny, as the music in the game is simply superb, and represents some of Koji Kondo's best work from my perspective. The music throughout the game is varied and thematically relevant based on where you may be exploring in the game, and I honestly don't believe there's a bad song in the entire game. What there are, though, are several songs that are pretty much pop culture icons, with perhaps the most well-known Ocarina of Time original song being the Gerudo Valley theme, which is simply amazing to listen to. Now, I know a couple critics complained about the fact that Ocarina of Time utilized MIDI instrumentation for most of the game's songs, but honestly, that doesn't bother me at all. For one, I do have a soft spot for MIDI and synthesized music, but beyond that, the music just sounded great, and it wouldn't have mattered whether it was performed by a live orchestra or programmed into a computer. The quality of the songs is what mattered, and from my perspective, Ocarina of Time had a lot of music to be loved. Sound effects, similarly, are great, with perhaps the sound effect you'll hear the most being Navi's frequent interjections of, Hey, listen! Strangely enough, the sound effects never get old, though the repeated suggestions of what to do next can become a bit distracting as you're working on a longer puzzle that you still need to figure out, or that perhaps you know the solution to but will take you some time to complete. Regardless, the fact is that the entire audio environment for the game was impeccably designed, and I didn't even really touch upon the Ocarina interface for playing the various songs you'll find throughout the game's world. While you only have to play a short snippet of each song in the game, the quote-unquote full versions of each are truly wonderful, and are likely worth the time it takes to learn and or listen to them, with my personal favorite being the Bolero of Fire. Bottom line, the music and sounds here are top-notch, and I loved the variety of themes that the game constantly threw at me. This is one of those rare soundtracks that sounds just as good today as it did when it was originally released. Though if you've never played the game, I wouldn't go into it expecting super high-quality orchestrated sounds. Excellent music, sure, it's just that it's more synthesized than real, which isn't something I'd personally dock at any points for. Moving on to the narrative and story... Like I mentioned, you begin your journey as young Link, a forest-dwelling Hillian who one day hears a telepathic call from the Princess of Hyrule, Zelda. Zelda warns Link of an evil about to befall the land, which is eventually proven to be Link's longtime enemy, Ganondorf, who had acquired a position of power within the Hillian royal court. Without giving away any spoilers, Princess Zelda is eventually forced to flee the castle, with Ganondorf following behind on horseback, while Link is instructed to travel forward through time to gather the cooperation of seven sages to, hopefully, use their combined power to eventually defeat Ganon once and for all. Aided by a mysterious person named Cheek, Link travels both backward and forward through time, gathering the skills, items, and support needed to take the fight to Ganon and, hopefully, save Hyrule from certain destruction. I've got to say, the story in Ocarina of Time is awesome, and while it's always more of a background narrative thread giving purpose to your overall adventure as opposed to a front-and-center cinematic plot, it works perfectly within the construct of the game. What I found most intriguing is the fact that beyond the game's main story arc, there are a number of smaller arcs and quests that contribute to, but stand alone from, the main narrative, 
and your overall experience with the story will be driven largely by how deep you decide to dive into the various environments, side quests, and character dialogues you'll encounter in the game. Taken at face value, the story is great, but when you combine it with all of the optional content and lore pieces, it becomes something even greater. Moving on to the playability and controls, controls in Ocarina of Time are relatively complex for the era in which it was released, so let's go over some of the highlights, since the game uses pretty much every feature of your Nintendo 64 controller. The most important parts of the controls, though, are how you move around the game world, use items, and ultimately partake in combat. Moving Link involves using the Nintendo 64 analog stick, and for the most part, it works well, and is very similar to how any analog-based movement scheme in modern titles works, which is to say, it's very similar to how you would expect a third-person open-world game to control. That being said, I did notice that the sensitivity wasn't quite as dialed in as what most modern gamers will likely be used to, which did lead to a couple of instances where I either mistakenly fell off a thin ledge, or perhaps moved a bit too far unintentionally, resulting in me dangling off the side of a cliff. Not a huge deal, but not quite as smooth as all of the analog control refinements that followed Ocarina of Time's release. Using the various items you'll find throughout your adventure is the job of your C buttons, which can be mapped to different items that can be used in the thick of battle. Some of those items are simply usable in the game's default third-person view, while some, like the bow and arrow, can switch to a first-person perspective to provide even greater control over aiming and forming your shots. Here, similar to general movement, the analog controls of the N64 are a bit imprecise, but nothing to be terribly critical about. I do want to mention one specific item, the Ocarina of Time itself, that has its own control scheme. When you take out your Ocarina, you're given the ability to play any series of notes you want, at least those that have been mapped directly to buttons on your controller, which is all the game requires you to do. But there are some additional Ocarina playing features, such as using the analog stick in combination with the Z or R buttons to shift the pitch of your notes, and those extra features are simply awesome to have at your disposal, even if they are ultimately unnecessary to complete the game. You can even add vibrato to your playing by pressing left or right on your analog stick, which causes your instrument to fluctuate rapidly between two pitches. I loved the fact that these features were included in the game, even if they weren't required to beat the game. It's one of those small touches that make certain things memorable, and that certainly applies in this case. Anyway, besides moving around and using items, the vast majority of your playthrough is going to be focused on combat, and here, pressing the Z button on your controller activates Z targeting, which is effectively a lock-on mode that maintains your focus on a single enemy. You can then move around the battlefield, jump, and attack, all while facing the enemy you have targeted. This combat mode was absolutely revolutionary at the time it was released, and it would serve as the first example of how to truly implement an intuitive mechanism for targeting in a three-dimensional world. And for the most part, it works really well. That being said, Z-targeting is definitely starting to show its age a bit, and I experienced several times where, despite my best efforts, I simply couldn't hit the darn enemy I was trying to attack. Now let me be clear. Z-targeting is immensely more useful and innovative than nearly any other three-dimensional targeting scheme that existed before Ocarina of Time was created. It's just that compared to modern expectations, it leaves a bit to be desired. Overall, though, the game controls great, and it remains an incredibly playable title even today, with many of its gameplay mechanics reflected in modern titles, demonstrating just how influential Ocarina of Time was and continues to be. Before we move on, though, I do have to say that from my personal perspective, I felt like a couple of the dungeons may have overstayed their welcome a bit, and I found the Shadow Temple in particular a bit of a slog to get through. 
That might have been partly driven by the fact that the game failed to recognize a shortcut I opened up because I mistakenly didn't place a movable block in the right spot for the event to actually trigger, which I admit was truly my mistake. But even beyond that, the Shadow Temple was not my favorite dungeon, and there were a couple of others that I felt could have been streamlined to make the game an even better experience. Regardless though, Ocarina of Time only falters in a couple areas here, with the rest of the game simply being a joy to behold. Overall, how did it feel to play Ocarina of Time? Well, 99% of the game feels absolutely amazing, evoking a sense of wonder, nostalgia, and intrigue at every turn. If you've played the game previously, don't be scared that your memories will be tarnished by revisiting the title today. It has aged incredibly well, and it largely feels modern despite its age. There are a couple of rougher spots, like I mentioned a minute or so ago, but those are truly few and far between. For the most part, Ocarina of Time is a masterclass in game design, and it is truly as revolutionary as people say. So what is our overall verdict on Ocarina of Time? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time is a masterpiece and is absolutely a deserving entrant into our pantheon of classic gaming. There's really not much more to say beyond that. It is one of the best games of all time, created by one of the most creative teams of all time, and is aged like one of the finest wines of all time. This is one title you cannot miss. If for some reason you haven't played this one, drop what you're doing and go find a copy right now. You can thank me later after you've experienced the wonder that is Ocarina of Time, our newest addition to our pantheon of classic gaming. That was our episode on The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I highly encourage you to check it out. I also highly encourage you to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday. If you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the Super Nintendo title Pilot Wings, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. This is not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to deliver the best possible podcast I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback from the listener community to make sure that we are hitting the mark and delivering the best content possible. 
We get new listeners every single day, which is absolutely awesome. I want to continue to make sure that I am delivering the best possible podcast for all of us that I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on pilot wings. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>